Hey friends, welcome to episode 71 of the Fierce Calling podcast. I'm your host, Dara Swift, and I'm thankful that you're joining me today. Before I start the show, I'm going to give a big shout out to my friends and sisters at the Rock Springs Evangelical Free Church in Rock Springs, Wyoming. These God's Girls are so amazing. I had the privilege of speaking at their ladies retreat this past weekend in a beautiful facility in Utah. They were so welcoming and just to see these women love Jesus and love each other so well and serve, it was just outstanding and I just can't say enough about them. I just fell in love with all of them and I love you girls and I hope to see you soon. Thank you so much for having me and if you are looking for a speaker for your next women's event, check out my speaking page at daraswift.com and I'd love to chat about that. Today, my guest is my friend Rachel Pye Jones. Rachel shares the hard parts of her story, the time when her family had to flee a place they loved because it was no longer safe for them and what that was like. She writes about life at the crossroads of faith and culture, and she does this all under the umbrella of being a Christian in a Muslim country, loving Jesus and loving her neighbor well. So I know what Rachel has to share will inspire, encourage, and challenge you. So listen in while I have a chat with Rachel Pye Jones. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Fierce Calling Podcast. Today I am welcoming my friend Rachel Pye Jones. She writes about life at the crossroads of faith and culture for the New York Times, Christianity Today, Runner's World, and more. Her work is influenced by living in the Horn of Africa, which is amazing. We're going to hear more about that. Raising third culture kids. She's the author of Pillars and Stronger Than Death. And you can find her at rachelpiejones.com. And we'll talk more about how you can get in touch with her and connect with her near the end of the show. So be sure to stay with us through the entire time so you can hear those details. So welcome to the show, Rachel. It's so great to have you today. Thanks, Doris. I'm thrilled to be here with you. I would love if you would talk to us a little bit about your story and how God led you on this path to where you are. And you can share anything you'd like to about your family and how also you're taking action where your passion, compassion, and conviction intersect. Sure. So I feel like my life story or experiences kind of answer that question a little bit, um, but I can be more specific towards the end of just explaining how, how on earth I ended up in the Horn of Africa. So I am originally from Minnesota. I am an American Christian. And in 2003, my husband and I and our two and a half year old twins moved to Somaliland, where he was a professor at a university. And so the reason that we moved there was because we had been living in an apartment complex in Minneapolis that was mostly full of Somali refugees. And we already had a heart to go somewhere else. We wanted to live and work somewhere else internationally in the world, but we didn't really know where. And so through those connections with friends in that building, they told us about a peaceful region of Somalia where this university was really just getting started and they were actively looking for native English speaking professors who could come and teach science and physics, which was what my husband's interest was at that time. And so because we had this invitation, um, we knew that Somalia was a big stretch, you know, coming from Minneapolis with two and a half year old twins, we knew that it was gonna be hard, 
But having this invitation from local people who said, we want you here, you have skills that we need. We will help, you know, guide your process and shepherd you into our culture. It felt like, okay, that's a, that's a risk that we think with faith we could take. So in 2003, we did that, made that big jump to the other side of the planet. And, and then we lived where you worked um, just until October of 2003. And at that time, the peaceful facade kind of was, was broken through some violence targeting Westerners. And so our organization told us, you know, we can't keep you safe anymore. And also the university really said, we can't keep you safe anymore. You should go. And so we had 30 minutes to pack a suitcase and get to the airport and we left. And um, 2004, so from there, we went to Kenya for just a few months to kind of put our heads back on and try to figure out what just happened. And then we were again invited by some Somali friends to come to Djibouti, which is a small country. It borders Somalia, Ethiopia, and Eritrea, and then the Red Sea. And so they invited us to come here where he could continue teaching at the university. So we did that in January 2004, um, a long time ago, and we're still here. So I'm calling from Djibouti right now. And he continued, my husband continued to teach at that university until about 2014. And then he got his PhD in education. And then we launched a school of our own. And so we've been running that school for a while. And my, my focus for so many years was raising our family. We had a, a third child. She was born here. But I also was learning language, Somali and French. I was teaching English, doing microenterprise loans. Um, I started a girls running club and so, and I'm a writer. So I kind of freelanced all these other things that were combining my passion and my gifts and my skills with living here, with life here. So that's a kind of a long answer, but around the world, you know, it takes a while to share all that. That is amazing. And I want to unpack a few things that you said. First of all, I think you had said that there, if I heard that correctly, there were Somalian people where you lived in the apartment complex in the United States, right? Mm-hmm. Minneapolis has one of the largest populations uh, in North America of Somalis. And so they were our neighbors, just the people wow. around us. Wow. That is really cool when you think about it, because, you know, God calls us to love our neighbors. And then mm-hmm. here's your neighbors who are where you were being actually called to go serve. And then they were here in the States. And then, you know, it's kind of like, it seems God was like just unfolding all of this mm-hmm. as that went along. And then when you went over there, it was really as uh, as our pastor likes to call it, like adventurous faith, because mm-hmm. we step out sometimes before we know what, you know, I don't know. I guess it's part of sometimes our, our nature that we want to know everything. Like we want to know all the details. We want to know everything before we step and do something big, but for God, it's a little different because it looks like first you step, first you put your toe in the water and then everything will recede or, you know, it's so it's kind of a a cool thing. And then when you were sharing about you having just 30 minutes to flee for your safety, I, I love the fact that people there were looking out for your safety and people there were telling you that they couldn't any longer provide for that or keep you safe. And knowing that God had you still moving to some other part of your call. What was that like when you got that message that you all had 30 minutes to pack? First, one thing that you said really struck me is that idea of that we are called to love our neighbors. And yes, in Minneapolis, 
my neighbors were Somalis and I was their neighbor too. But then we came to Somalia and it like flipped upside down. You know, I kind of, I became their neighbor and they were loving me. And of course I was loving them too, but it's just a different way of being neighbored when you're the outsider that I had never experienced before growing up as a white American Christian. I was in a very homogenous society until I moved to this apartment building. So then becoming the neighbor that needed to be welcomed and needed to be even protected, that was a very humbling and faith growing experience. It was, it was challenging, but quite good for us. Um, so I just wanted to say that about the value of being neighbored um, and letting people who aren't like us neighbor us and love us well. So, so yeah, to answer your question specifically, um, it was really hard. You know, we had put a lot of work and effort into moving to the Horn of Africa. It took, it took a lot of preparation and planning and, you know, convincing of people that this was a good decision for our family. And then to have it be over so quickly and so suddenly and so violently was, was hard and disappointing because, um, you know, I knew there's this idea that Somalis or Muslims are violent or that the idea of terrorism and Islam being mixed up together. And so it, it felt like this would maybe prove to some people that those things were true, but we understood that that was not the case. This was a specific scenario of violence, you know, that was not, it couldn't be more broadly cast as this culture or this religion, but it, it was hard to experience. And so it felt like kind of a loss of a dream, the end of a plan. We didn't have any idea what was happening next. So what had happened was actually, actually my first book, Stronger Than Death, is about this woman who was murdered in our village. She was an Italian Catholic mm-hmm. who had spent 30 years serving Somali nomads with tuberculosis. And um, she was targeted and was murdered. And then another British couple who were teachers were killed. And so, you know, just knowing that people had actually lost their lives and that we had somehow been spared by mercy was quite sobering. I didn't know them. I just, it was a, such a privilege to write this woman's biography later, but at the time I didn't know her. And we got the call from one of our coworkers in the capital of the north of Northern Somaliland. And he said what had happened. And he said, you need to pack a bag and leave right now. And so it just, everything in that moment happened so quickly. We didn't have a chance to say goodbye to people. We just threw things into a bag and literally mm-hmm. ran to the airport. And so, you know, later, a couple of days later, I had a chance just to, to weep and cry with the Lord and say, why, why did we put so much effort into going there? And now it ended so violently and so suddenly, and yet we were spared. And so there was this, this sense of um, loss for other people and their families who are going to be grieving this. And then, you know, our own self of just wondering what's next and what is God's plan for this? And so I look back now with so many years of perspective and I'm so thankful for that time that we had there, even though it was really short, it was very transformational and really impacted the next, you know, 15, 16 years for us. Um, And in some sense, it helped me appreciate on a new level what so many Somalis or other people do experience when they're forced to flee and leave a place that they care about. Um, And for me, it was just a temporary home, but so many other refugees have to flee a place that is their, their home, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that sense of loss and fear um, has just increased my compassion, I think, for what other people experience a little bit. Yeah, that's a great point, you know, that you can see how a whole different people group experience something that we never have had to experience here in the United States in certain parts. I mean, there's, there's always different things that go on in even in our country that 
are threatening and those kind of things, but it's just eye-opening, right? And Mm -hmm. I love how that, you know, how you explained all of that and the term that you used earlier where you said you were being neighbored. Mm -hmm. I, I had not ever heard that described that way. And I love that because it did flip it. You were loving your neighbor and then they were loving you as their neighbor and you were being neighbored. And that is really awesome. And it just, it seems like it, it's a way that God shows us that his, his ways are higher Mm -hmm. and there's things so much bigger than we are, but yet our world isn't as big as sometimes we make it out to be, you know, like that it's overwhelmingly too large for us to reach Mm -hmm. people when he just shows us, okay, well, here's your, your neighbor here are going to be the same people that are going to neighbor you when you go to their country and how it, how it is a different culture change, right? So that, okay, so then the, your Somalian neighbors that were with you in the States, they were living in our kind of a culture. And then when you went to their part of the world, you were living in their kind of a culture, right? So mm-hmm. how, what was that like? Yeah, it, I had to learn a lot. You know, I was really needy at first. I I didn't know, you know, I, I didn't know how to get around. I didn't know how to drive. I had learned how to drive a stick shift. I didn't know the language. And so in so many ways, I felt like a child or a baby, very helpless and very needy. Mm-hmm. Um, and still I make cultural faux pas and mistakes, you know, but I'm able to joke about it and laugh it off. You have to, because it's just inevitable when you're living cross-culturally, but Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was very humbling. And then in terms even of faith, I, I recognize that um, my own faith practices are, in some senses, they're cultural, even as they are deeply spiritual as well. But the way that we practice Christianity in America is American in some senses. And so um, the things that I did, the way that I prayed or the way that I fasted, um, the way that we worship in church, it's very different than how Muslims do. And so it was hard at first for some of my friends to recognize my faith practices as legitimate spiritual engagement with God in the sense of, I actually had a friend. So, so Muslims fast for a month. It's called Ramadan and they'll fast from sunrise until sunset. They won't drink any water. They won't eat any food for that whole month um, during those hours. And then at night they will eat and drink. And so I was fasting and I was doing it for several days in a row where I was only drinking water and I wasn't, I wasn't breaking the fast in the evening. I just went straight through with no food. And so my local friends, they, one of them eventually told me she was very worried about me. And she was, mm-hmm. she said, I think that the way you're fasting is sinful. Um, mm-hmm. And it, we had a great conversation about it of just how, you know, why would she say that? And why was I fasting in this manner? You know, it, we don't fast the same. We don't have the same motivations for it or reasons for it, but we do both fast. And so we could you know, we were trying to connect and she was trying to understand, but it was just so different from what she had experienced. Mm -hmm. And so um, we ended up having, like I said, a good conversation about it, but it revealed to me some of these ways of how I just had to ask myself questions. How can I communicate that I have a a vibrant spiritual life in ways that would actually make sense to the people around me who have had such a different kind of way of practicing their faith. And so both culture, faith, language, all these things were, um, I had to sort of relearn. I mean, I didn't relearn the doctrines of my faith and the foundations of them. Those are things that I have held to all these years, but I have relearned um, different ways of talking about it or practicing it, if that makes sense. Yes, that is fascinating. And I really 
want to bring out how you were talking about the way that you worship God, the way that you partake in that different forms of worship or how you were fasting, you know, look different to someone else, but that you had a conversation about it. And I think that's so important because right away, we're quick to just judge that people are doing something wrong. Like you're not doing that the right way and you should do it this way. You know, in that conversation opens doors to help others understand, well, this is why. And, you know, like you were saying, it's, it's cultural, even in the way that we do things here in the United States, how we partake in our worship services and things like that. Mm-hmm. So that was really interesting. And I love that you had that conversation and it, it's going to encourage someone today too, because I know that there's someone out there listening today that feels misunderstood, Mm. uses these things to open our eyes. And, you know, the fact that too, you were talking about how you had to flee quickly and leave for the safety of you and your family. And though things felt unfinished and it just reminded me of the scripture that said, says to us that he who began a good work in us will he will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He, he will complete it. And so the work that sometimes we do that might feel unfinished is really finished in God's eyes for that particular season and moment and place. And then he continues it. It's like a continuation, but, but I, I can Mm -hmm. see how that could be so hard not to be able to say those, you know, goodbyes or properly exit a place Mm-hmm. Uh, since it's so quickly done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think one of the one of the things that I encourage people to do, like you were talking about someone who might feel misunderstood or be on the either side of that difference. Um, I think something that is so valuable and that we maybe miss out on as we focus on ourselves a mm-hmm. lot naturally, but I think we are called by faith to think about other people more than ourselves but Mm -hmm. uh, the idea of curiosity and just the importance of curiosity a sincere curiosity about someone else's story and so my friend was concerned about me and she asked me why are you fasting that way as opposed to just saying hey you know what's going on here you're doing this wrong Um, but then I could also ask her okay could you also help me understand why you're fasting that way and what does it mean to you and how do you feel about it and so if we can approach Mm -hmm. our differences in that with that a humble curiosity, um, I think it will just open up space for more conversation to, to be understood or to understand somebody else. Yeah, those are great points right there. And it is a, a vast difference when someone is approaching you with compassion and concern, mm-hmm. and they really have your best interests in mind, instead of just being critical about things. And sometimes we have to step back and let our defenses down a little bit because we could feel like someone's being critical when in actuality, they're just concerned and want to know more. And, and two, you know, worrying about, you know, how we're treating our bodies or things like that. And people could have something to say about certain things that we might do, but, but mean well, and mm-hmm. don't mean it to be critical. So thank you for bringing that up. That that's really important to remember as we interact with people and just love people. And, you know, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we can see other people through his eyes, you know, through a biblical worldview lens, no matter where we are in the world. So that's so important. And 
And I love the work that you were doing with the girls. If mm. you could expand on that a little bit and tell us about how that got started and, and what that's all about. Sure. So I used to hate running, but in 2007, another American convinced me to run with her. And I just loved spending time with her so much that I kept running so I could spend time with her. And then I fell in love with running. And so, you know, this was a long time ago. And back then there weren't very many women in particular running here. It's a, it's a safe city, a safe country, and I'm free to run. Um, but there just weren't that many. And so we ended up going to the national stadium and they let us come in in the afternoons to train. And when I was there, I saw there were a few local girls who were running at the, at the stadium and there was teams and clubs for boys to run, but there wasn't any that was just for girls. A couple of girls were welcome on some of the teams, but they really didn't want girls. We actually asked one of the men at the stadium why there wasn't a team for girls. And he said, they're too much trouble. <laughs> and we said, well, maybe there should be one. And he said, well, why don't you start one? And so this other American that I was with, she's a, a wonderful ideas person and a go-getter. And she was like, okay, let's do it. And so in 2008, we launched this all girls running club called Girls Run 2 with the number two. And we, we just took girls on for training. And the focus has been ever since then to keep these girls in school. A lot of them come from families who just can't afford to keep their girls in school or they haven't kept them for whatever reason. Um, and so in order to be on the team, the girls have to be in school. And we have provided them with shoes and sports bras and t-shirts and things like that, as well as transportation funds to different races. Mm -hmm. um, so in the early years, I was pretty engaged with that team. Eventually we did pass it off to various coaches over the years. And so one of the early coaches was actually a former Olympic sprinter for Djibouti. And then now, now the coach actually is a girl who joined the team in 2010. Mm -hmm. And so she's stuck with it. She graduated and she now is the coach, which is really amazing to watch her um, and to be a part of her life story for so long from when she was, you know, a kid. And now she's a young woman coaching the team. And so they still, um, they still train, they still compete and they still keep the girls in school. And there has been more and more normalizing of girls running. And so not just girls, but also women, there's this idea. If a woman runs that we risk damaging our reproductive organs, and I've even been told that my uterus might fall out. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be and awkward. So, right. When did, I mean, I could always just catch it, I guess, and yeah. pop it back in, but, yeah. right. <laughs> um, or that if you, you know, if you run, you won't be able to have babies, things like that. And so as a, a mother who runs, you know, I just feel like even that is an example mm. of, you know, our bodies can do this and I don't know, I don't run fast, but I can do it. And so, um, the girls have just continued to more and more normalized that this is both good for their bodies, but also good for their sense of community. You know, they belong on this team. And so it's provided a sense of unity and community in the neighborhoods where these girls come from. And then, you know, they challenge each other and they also help each other to stay in school. And um, yeah, it's been, it's been really fun to watch the team grow. Wow. That is so beautiful. I love that story. And, you know, just think about the life changing transformation that took place in the lives of these girls because someone took an interest in them and thought mm -hmm. that it was important and that, you know, that they should be able to do these things and 
their lives have value, not just because they run, because even if they didn't run, they still had value, but someone to take the time to do that. And you just wonder what the trickle effect is, you know, and how it's similar to like, you know, discipleship when we disciple someone and then they in turn disciple someone else. And now that you're seeing the fruit of what began as a question, you know, why aren't girls running? (laughs) And Mm -hmm. and the whole mindset of they're too much trouble and dispelling the myths of our bodies falling out (laughs) and parts of us just coming apart as we run. So that was important to show Mm -hmm. other people that no, we we can actually do this. It was a breakthrough really. Mm -hmm. At sport, I feel like sport and faith have so many ways of intersecting and just how um, I mean, we see that in scripture, but we also can feel it that God made my body. Um, and so to be able to, to use my body physically and to feel all the sweat, I mean, it is hot in Djibouti. And so that, or to, to feel the dust and to feel the rocks under our feet, like it's, it's all part of engaging in the world that God created and the way that he made us. And so for me personally, I find it, um, I find it almost like a spiritual practice, um, but then also just to connect in that way with other women and to help girls experience that also in their bodies. I think there's a lot of value in that. Yeah, that is really encouraging too. And I know there's a listener out there that is right now struggling, you know, with wanting to find some way to move their body, you know, to exercise. Mm-hmm. And I know I, I deal with that too. And this is just another way to look at it. If we look at it as a form of worship and also a form of fellowship or womanship or however we want to say that. But I I feel like what you brought out are very important points to see that it is so very connected and spiritually connected. And, you know, when I walk or when it's hot, I, I'm the one that is like drenched. I look like I just took a shower when, and then the person next to me is all calm, cool, and collective. You know, they're not, They, they haven't broken a sweat yet. And I'm like looking like I just swam an Olympic sized pool. And when we think about it, it you know, our bodies have been created to cool off, you know, our temperatures and mm-hmm. it's a cleansing. There, there's just so much more deeper things in doing these things than it being like a drudgery or an effort when we look at it from a different point of view. So thank you mm-hmm. for bringing that up. I think it's important in the way that you were talking when you first started running that it was something you didn't really like, but because, you know, you got a chance to spend some time with this friend and then you fell in love with the running part too, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. I love that. Cause you know, when you're talking with a friend, time just goes by, mm-hmm. you know, even when you're driving. Cause sometimes, I mean, I don't like to drive long distances. Sometimes it's a drudgery, but if you have a friend or someone with you and you're kind of like, you know, engaging, paying attention to the road, but engaging in conversation, it just seems to go so much faster. Share a little bit too about it. For one thing I wanted to also, and I don't want to forget this point because it's important what you were talking about, the book that you wrote, which was about the woman who was serving there and her, she lost her life serving and doing good for others and caring well for her neighbor, you know, then you continued that in your book, these Mm -hmm. words that will continue. So her life story continues. And that is 
amazing. And sometimes we might serve and we don't see any fruit and we wonder, I'm supposed to bear much fruit. Where is the fruit? You know, and so this is an amazing testament to her life. So thank you for that and listening to the call of the Lord to write that book. And if you could share a little bit about the other things that you have written as well, I'd love to hear that. Sure. So my, that was my first traditionally published book. I have two self-published cookbooks that are um, helping people to cook in this part of the world based on what they can find locally. And I've written a book about third culture kids. A third culture kid is a kid who's grown up outside their parents' passport country. And so kids who grow up internationally like mine, um, they just have a different experience of identity. And I've written a guidebook to Djibouti. So if anyone comes here to Djibouti, that's the book you need. But then recently in April, I had a book come out called Pillars, How Muslim Friends Led Me Closer to Jesus. Mm -hmm. And that really unpacks uh, my spiritual journey over all these years and how I have interacted with the, the five pillars of Islam. So there's five basic kind of foundational practices. And so I address each one of those and how learning about those has impacted my own faith. And so that's uh, a, a recent book. And it's really, I feel like the book of my heart and it focuses on stories, trying to really humanize the experience of faith, both my own as a Christian in interacting with Islam and then also the faith of my Muslim friends. Yeah, that was really a cool concept and, and beautiful how you shared, how you learned so much from looking at someone else's faith and culture, you know strengthening and learn and learning more about it because if we have something but we don't have other things to compare it to mm. you know so it's like okay here's the truth and we know that we have the truth but it's not our job to convert people or change people's hearts it's god's job and mm -hmm. it's kind of cool that the more you seek to know more about the other person's faith the more they will in turn want to ask about your faith, right? And learn more about that, which could send them on a journey as well, right, Rachel? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, you know, I've had to really ask, do I believe these things about Jesus and about the Bible because that's what I grew up around? Mm -hmm. Or is it because I they still hold when I'm in a place where that's not the pervasive culture and ideas around? And so by contrast, like you said, by, by other people asking me questions, by looking at contrast. And I've had to look back at my own faith and say, yeah, I really do believe that. I really do love those truths. And so it's um, definitely made my faith actually grow instead of feeling threatened by a different religion or, um, mm -hmm. you know, nervous about engaging or something like that. I've really appreciated what it's done for my own faith. Yeah, that is amazing. I love that. And it, it just, yeah, we need not be fearful of interacting with someone who believes something different than we do. Mm -hmm. Like I used to say, sometimes I would be defensive, you know, about my faith and I would not understand why this person wouldn't see this or understand or believe. And then when I started moving toward learning more about apologetics and how it's a def defense of the faith, but it's not being defensive, you know, it's having conversations mm -hmm. of faith, like you were talking about faith conversations, just to, to learn. And there could be things that we could clear up misconceptions that people might mm -hmm. have not understood correctly. But also, I love that you found a deeper sense of faith when you question it. And it's okay to question 
whether we believe something or not. And God is fine with that. And he's like, yeah, ask away. Seek and you shall mm-hmm. find, right? Yeah, you can handle it, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think a grounded faith mm. can make us loving and brave to mm. reach out. And so I also went to a public university, public school all through my life. And I would say also at the University of Minnesota is where my faith really deepened because you have to decide, is this what I want? Is this really what I want? And it's a, it's a more conscious and more um, visceral type of decision. Yeah. And it's so powerful making the choice because he wants us to choose. He's already chosen us when we choose that is a powerful thing. So I have just enjoyed this conversation. And I love that you brought out your children have been raised in a different culture, how that is for them, and that you've written about this, which is a wonderful guide, which people can read when they go to different countries. Some might even be called not necessarily on, you know, a journey of faith, but some may be called to just work in another country or, you know, and so they can Mm -hmm. read about what you've experienced and that will be a great help to them. Cause I think that is important to remember that not every child is born in, like you said, their parents' passport country. So it is, uh, it is cool for kids to be exposed to different cultures and find their faith and be grounded in that too. So thank you for sharing that, Mm -hmm. Rachel. And please feel free to now share how our listener can connect with you and any last thoughts that you have for the listeners. So the best way to find me is my website is rachelpiejones.com. And I'm on all those social media places with that same handle, Rachel Pie Jones. And I also write a newsletter on Substack. And so again, Rachel Pie Jones on Substack. And I have links to all the things on my website. So you can just go straight there and find the books and find my newsletter, um, new essays and updates and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, Rachel Pie Jones with an H on the end of pie. Great. I was When I was asking Rachel before the show, because I wanted to make sure I pronounced that name correctly. And I saw P-I-E was the first three letters. I'm like, well, I like pie. And I, I'm thinking this is pie. <laughs> so she's like, yeah, you got it right. So that's cool. So just remember pie with an H at the end. So we'll have all of those links and the link to your main site in the show notes. So the listeners can just go right to your episode on daraswift.com if they're listening in another platform or they might be already right on my website listening on my player and just scroll down and find the link so you can connect with Rachel because I am quite certain that so many things that you shared today Rachel resonated with the listeners and I appreciate that and thank you for coming on it's been such a pleasure and a joy to have you. Thank you you so much yeah it's been a great conversation Doris thank you. Yeah I just really enjoyed it so much and I I hope to have you on again in the future and see what is going on with Rachel and all the different things that God is calling you in that season of your fierce calling. So thank you, friend. All right. We'll we'll talk soon. Friends, thank you for listening today. And I hope what Rachel had to share encouraged and inspired you because what an amazing story and she stepped out in faith 
to do what God was calling her to do along with her family. And it just is so encouraging to know that there are sisters in Christ who can come around to us and encourage us and show us what they have experienced and talk about that with us so that we can also share what we have experienced with them. And so it's just an amazing thing how God puts us together. And it's just all by divine appointment. So I hope you reach out to Rachel at her website. And I do have that link in the show notes for you. And I would also love to connect with you. And remember, if you are looking for a speaker for your next women's event, I would love to talk to you about that too. So check out my page at doraswift.com. And if Fierce Calling has impacted you in any way, or if it encourages you, I would just love to hear about that too. And don't forget to go to Podchaser and rate the podcast and also leave a comment. It helps others find the podcast so that more can hear the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ because we're called to share his word and his message and the good news of Jesus because the world needs hope right now, friends. We all need hope and that is the only hope we have is the hope of Christ. So thank you. And I hope you join me next time when I talk to another woman who's taking action where her passion, compassion, and conviction intersect. Until then, friends, have a blessed week and I'll talk to you soon.